You're listening to episode eight of Rainbow Baby, a podcast documenting a journey of pregnancy after loss. I'm your host, Taylor Bates. In May 2018, my first child, Ellis, was stillborn at 31 weeks for unknown reasons. In the depths of unimaginable grief, my husband Hunter and I knew we wanted to try again. Since then, we've experienced new pregnancies and more loss. We're still hoping for our rainbow baby, which is defined as a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of an infant from natural causes. I want to share my story with you because life after pregnancy loss can be so isolating. You'll also hear conversations with others who've walked this path before me. In this episode, I'm happy to have my husband Hunter joining me for the first time, and we both talk about the next step in our journey, which includes IVF. Um, So we talk through our feelings about that and um, our expectations, and we also talk about our experience of grief and trying to conceive over the last year and kind of looking back through what that's been like and how that's um, evolved our relationship and really strengthened our relationship thankfully. So it was really fun to record this episode with Hunter, and um, I'm hoping that we'll have more of these in the future. Um, So I hope you enjoy. Here's the episode. Testing, testing. Testing, Taylor. Taylor testing. Testies. Testing. (laughs) (laughs) We're probably going to be talking about sperm and vaginas. And uterus, uteri. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Taylor and Hunter here. My husband Hunter is on the podcast today. Hello everyone, glad to be here. So um, I wanted to start off by giving an update about what happened since the last episode where I talked about how we'd been to our first fil- visit to a fertility clinic Um, And since then, we've had our second visit where I had a test done on my uterus and on my fallopian tubes to see if they were clear. Um, So they did two different tests, one where they put a catheter into my uterus. It didn't hurt at all. And they filled it with saline and um, they could see the shape of my uterus, which is normal. And... um, everything was clear. So that was great. And then they did a test where they put another catheter in and this time I was under an x-ray machine and they could, they put dye into my fallopian tubes and they could see that my tubes were clear and they were normal looking. So all of that was really great. Um, and then they went over all of our test results. Um, and actually Hunter wasn't at that appointment because he had a really important presentation at work that he couldn't miss. Um, and the appointment couldn't be rescheduled because it was connected with, um, where I was in my cycle because of these tests. So Hunter's mom went with me, um, and she was there to kind of be an extra year, um, because it was a lot of information that they went over with us. Um, and they went over all of our genetic testing. Um, everything was normal, which is good. Um, I think one of my biggest fears was, um, being told everything is normal. Um, but then on the flip side of that, I also had a fear of like being told that there was something really bad. Um, why did, why did you, um, have a fear of being told everything was normal? Because 
I want an answer. And um, we don't have answers for why Ellis was stillborn. So um, I thought um, it would be nice to have an answer as to why we've been having the miscarriages, the chemical pregnancies. We've had one miscarriage at 10 weeks and then four chemical pregnancies. Um, So I just thought it would be frustrating to have all this testing done and then be told like, oh, everything's normal, but it doesn't feel normal because we've been trying for a year now and um, keep getting pregnant, but we're not able to stay pregnant. Um, So what ended up happening is that we kind of got a hybrid of answers. So all of our testing was normal, which is ultimately good, but she gave us a diagnosis of, or she gave me a diagnosis of being hyperfertile. So she described it like my uterus clings to every embryo that forms, regardless of whether it's viable. So um, she said that there could be two issues that are happening. Either there's a chromosomal issue with an embryo that forms and my uterus still um, clings to it and the embryo implants, but then eventually the body recognizes it and um, that's what is causing the chemical pregnancies. Or there's a a timing issue. So um, there's a timing issue with implantation. Either it's the embryo is implanting in my uterus too early or too late. So ultimately her recommendation was for us to do IVF, in vitro fertilization. Um, and she said, we're great candidates because all of the rest of our testing is normal. Um, and ideally it can solve for both of those problems because they do genetic screening on the embryo so they can test for chromosomal problems. And then they also, um, will find, they'll do tests, a biopsy of my uterus and determine what is the best day for my uterus, um, to have an embryo implanted. So hopefully IVF can, can correct for both of those issues and we'll have a healthy pregnancy. Um, so that appointment was like two and a half hours with the tests that they did on me. And then also going over all the information and we had a lot of questions and our doctor, made me feel really good, um, about all of it. And I think you and I, one of your reactions, um, which I shared was wondering if, you know, this fertility clinic, they're in the business of IVF. And so are they just telling us this because, you know, they can make a lot of money off of us. Um, and we're clearly wanting to have, um, a solution that can hopefully prevent any more losses. Um, so how did, what were kind of your initial reactions? Like, I know I came home and told you all of this, um, kind of reported to you about our appointment. Yeah, I, I was happy to hear that we had, um, kind of normal results and that we did, I mean, we did get the uh, kind of an explanation in terms of your hyperfertility for why, um, we were having those, uh, um, kind of miscarriages after the fact, after Ellis. Um, and 
I, I could trust your kind of reaction, your instincts and, and my mom's as well. Um, two ladies I trust <laughs> deeply, um, that you felt like it was a good idea. Um, but I did have, you know, some kind of reservation, um, you know, it's just about was this kind of similar to a the you go for your oil change and then they try to throw on the wiper fluid right. and all this other stuff, um, you know, and maybe from their perspective, it does make sense and they're not just trying to sell it. But to, are they just seeing things from a slanted perspective right. that everybody needs this or um, can can benefit from it? Yeah. You know, Um and it's when you when we look back on you know how long we've been trying to get pregnant it's not really that long it hasn't been that long um and so there's also a part of me that wonders like well what if we just keep trying you know and they can tell us that maybe what was it like a five percent four percent chance that we would get pregnant um and, and carry to term yeah. naturally. Um, but, you know, that's based on, I guess, a small sample size of of our results, you know. Um, and our history. And our history. Uh, and so, you know, we don't know, you know. Yeah. It, it might have worked. But, um. But then, you know, it could be the other, the opposite could also be true where we keep kicking our head, you know, or knocking our head against the wall and uh, trying to get pregnant and going through more miscarriages and um, that being a strain. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, I think that's ultimately where I land is if there's anything that we can do to increase our odds of not having more pregnancy loss, I want to do that. Um, it'd be one thing if we hadn't had a stillbirth, I might be more willing to try longer. Um, but even, you know, after a year, technically couples are, um, if you've been trying for a year and haven't gotten pregnant, which we're kind of unusual because we have gotten pregnant, like, five times, um, but they, none of them have stuck. So, um, that's where, you know, I do have those same kind of doubting thoughts in my mind about, you know, them tacking on all these extra services, but at the same time, the services that they recommend to us make sense. And I've also felt comforted because I have, I've talked with, I think three people, um, at this point who have either, had babies with the same clinic or are currently with them and they've all been recommended different treatments than us. So it's not like they're just recommending, you know, the same thing to everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, they truly are, this is their custom recommendation for us. Um, so I feel, I feel like I'm at a point where I've, I'm just having to trust that the doctors have our best interests at heart. And that's really been my prayer too, is that the doctors will be guided rightly and that I'll be able to trust them because historically I've been a person who always 
wants to do things naturally. I like to eat organic food and avoid taking medication if I don't have to. And so this feels very opposite of the way that I've approached um, my body and my health. But it's at the same time when I was in the appointment and I got to hear about the technology, it really was amazing and um, just fascinating, the technology that they have. And um, I mean, for example, once they um, retrieve my eggs and they fertilize the eggs with your sperm, they watch the embryos develop. And by day five, they grow to 200 cells and then they're able to extract five cells from each embryo without harming them and do um, genetic testing on those five cells. And they can tell whether they're um, going to be viable embryos and if they have any chromosomal issues. And they can also tell the gender. Um, so it's just incredible that that's available to us. And I feel like it's a huge privilege that we have access to it and we can afford it. Um, and I don't take that for granted. So, um, I think I'm trying to approach all of it with an attitude of gratitude and I'm going to try really hard not to complain through the process. So you'll have to help me mm -hmm. <laughs> do that. Um, but I've wondered too, okay. So, um, by just, the way, it's not really, uh, you know, you're the one going through all these changes with the hormones. So I wouldn't really feel comfortable telling you you know, stop overreacting or, yeah. or don't, you know, have an attitude of gratitude yeah. when you're the one taking the shots and everything. Well, so. I appreciate that. Yeah. I guess, um, I want you to be my reminder. Maybe like I'm telling you now to help me have that attitude of, right. um, or at least I know you're always going to be supportive of me. So, um, but yeah, thank you for clarifying that. So one thing that gave me confidence in the treatment and the doctors at the fertility clinic um, was I went in for a semen analysis and uh, blood work, um, and uh, I was sitting waiting for um, my blood work to get done, and I saw a conversation between the doctor that I found out was the one that uh, saw you and um, kind of gave you all of the, the options and everything. So she was talking to two lab techs and um, they were talking about basically the schedule for uh, someone's uh, lab work to be done and when they were going to try to get it done. Um, I think it was scheduled for one day, but she was really pushing them to get it done sooner um and you could really tell from that that she was very patient you know driven and and um that was it was kind of inspiring to see that she really cared about the people um and uh yeah so i, th I thought that was that kind of gave me um some uh she said something like, you know, let's, let's go for this. Let's do it, you know? And, uh, yeah, it gave me more kind of faith in this process and, and the doctors. I love hearing that. Mm -hmm. You haven't shared that with me yet. Yeah. 
I'm glad you share that. <laughs> yeah, I really like our doctor. Um, she was recommended by my OB, who I also love. And they did their residency together. And Dr. Failer, our fertility clinic doctor, she um, specializes in recurrent loss. So she seems to be really knowledgeable. Um, and yeah, I just, I trust her and she's compassionate, but also straightforward, which I appreciate because, um, you know, I want to know the truth. I don't want it to be sugarcoated because um, I've already... I know all the things that can go wrong, especially around pregnancy. Um, I'm not really familiar with IVF, even though I've talked to several friends. I have a general idea of what to expect. And now having talked with the doctors and nurses about it, um, I can give everyone an overview of what it looks like for us. So um, I just took my first birth control pill last night. So that's kind of the beginning of the process for us. And um, it seems weird to take birth control when we're trying to get pregnant, but what it does is um, it suppresses my follicles from growing. Um, and I started take I started taking the birth control on day three of my cycle, so um, that'll make it to where the follicles that are on my ovaries they won't grow yet; they're kind of on pause, and the follicles are what hold the eggs. Um, and then after two weeks of taking the birth control, that's when we'll start taking these shots or injections. Um, our dog Zelda is in the room with us. If you hear any growling noises or um, snoring, snoring. Um, she's sleeping in her bed. Um, so the injections, they come in a big box. They're being shipped from New Jersey. So I guess the... Um, the medications that come in syringes are one of the most expensive parts of IVF. And um, so our clinic works with this pharmacy in New Jersey that provides these medications at a better price because that's not covered by our insurance. So we pay out of pocket for those medications. Um, and so they ship them in a big box all at once and we have to refrigerate a lot of them. Um, and then, yeah, in two weeks we'll start taking those. And I don't have our exact protocol or calendar yet from our nurse is going to provide that for us really soon. And we'll start watching these videos that they'll send us that like educate us about the whole process. And I think we'll have to go in for like a, a meeting with the nurse where they'll teach you how to give me an injection. Um, and I think I'll probably be able to give them to myself too. Um, but it's really not that bad. Like the injections only last 12 days, um, and I think there are multiple syringes a day that you have to give, but um, at this point, for my testing, I already had 20 vials of blood drawn at once for all of the blood work that I had done, and, you know, I had a C-section with Ellis. Um, I've had so much poking and prodding on my body, and so I feel like this is kind of no big deal. Um, hopefully that's my, at least that's my feeling right now. Um, and I think that the medications, what I've heard from people is that they can, um, make you tired or bloated or kind of like symptoms that you might have with PMS. So in my mind, you know, 12 days of that isn't, I can handle that. It's not a big deal. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so then after the 12 days of injections, um, we'll do the egg retrieval. So they'll also be like doing um, ultrasounds on me to watch the growth of the follicles and how many follicles I have. Um, and then the day of the egg retrieval, I go under anesthesia, like a twilight anesthesia for, they said, I think 15 minutes. So it's not that long of a procedure. And they are able to go in with um, a vaginal ultrasound one that has a needle on the end of it, which sounds kind of crazy, but that's how they are able to extract each egg from each follicle. It's amazing. Uh Um, And that same day, you'll go in and give another, a fresh sperm sample. um, And they do this process called ICSI, which I forget what that stands for. It's, there's so many acronyms with IVF, um, in vitro fertilization. Crazy, yeah. Uh, but ICSI is where they take one of your sperm. So they'll like, somehow they can determine which ones are healthy and which ones aren't. And, um, they'll take one sperm and insert it into each egg and then they'll watch them, um, hopefully mature. So, you know, we might get like, say if we get 15 eggs that they take out and then they fertilize each one, there might be eight that mature. And so they'll watch them over the course of five days, like I said earlier, until they grow to 200 cells. And then they'll do the extraction where they do a biopsy of five cells to do genetic testing. And then I think it takes like a week or two and we'll hear back about how many embryos are healthy and viable. And then we can also learn the gender. And I'm curious, how do you feel about potentially learning the gender of our embryos and choosing which one we would want to start with? Mm -hmm. I think we have talked about this before, and I can't even remember how I felt about it. But I think, um, okay, so remind me, you told me that I think that female have a higher chance of success rate is that correct well that's interesting i know some people um for some reason their genetic diseases certain genetic diseases Mm -hmm. are more prevalent in males i think right and but we don't have any genetic disorders that you know based on our testing so i don't know if that's relevant for us but some couples will will only choose the female embryos to avoid having any potential genetic um disorders Mm -hmm. with the male embryos um but and then i've also heard that there's a slightly higher rate of stillbirth and sids with male babies but i don't know minuscule yeah i don't really know how much how relevant that is yeah i guess i kind of would want this to resemble a natural birth yeah in the most that it can uh so that's why i would kind of lean towards random um but but then i think okay now i'm kind of tracing our conversation (laughs) uh we were thinking well somebody has to make the decision right somebody if it's not us it's going to be somebody else unless they have like a some way to randomize the selection yeah and so um, I feel like if there's any 
somebody that is making that decision, then it should be us, um, unless it's truly random. Yeah. I'm very theory-oriented, I guess. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Because um, I'm like you, on the one hand, I like the idea of having as much of this process be natural. Um, although, yeah, if that decision is going to be made by someone, I would like to make it. Mm -hmm. Unless, like you said, they have some way to randomize it. But it seems like it would have to be someone making a decision because they're like in petri dishes so they have to, and it's highly controlled too because they don't want to like mix up the embryos mm -hmm. so it seems like really difficult that they would have a solution for making that truly random but maybe they just flip a coin <laughs> yeah and you know yeah maybe we could request could that, that? Yeah, yeah i'm sure they would do that yeah hmm. well if we did have if we did decide that we wanted to choose, how do you think you would choose? Well, you know, uh, when we were pregnant with Ellis, um, my feelings at the time were, you know, when everybody was telling us, oh, I think it's a boy or, oh, it's, it's a girl, you know, when uh, nobody knows yet. Um, and we waited for a while and uh and and took our results um to find out um we went to enchanted rock um but my feelings the whole time were that i didn't want to get into um leaning one way or the or another because um you know i would i would want to love the child equally and uh you know so I didn't really get into projecting which way one or the other, but I think after um, we did find out um, it was a boy, and uh, I did get um, you know the thought of that is exciting, and and um, and so I I would like a boy, but I would also like a girl. Yeah, that would be exciting too. So. Um, you know. Yeah. I can remember that moment. We were up on Enchanted Rock and we had the gender in an envelope and we opened it and I said, it's a boy. Mm -hmm. And you were so excited. Mm -hmm. It was really sweet. Was. And we made a little video announcing it to everyone and you <laughs> <laughs> went over to this one part of the rock and I was pretty far away from you and you like spread your arms out wide and you yelled, it's a boy. Yes. Um, what's the, uh, what's the song that I requested? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I, we had that playing over the video. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can include that in this podcast yeah yeah
but I think in general I'm I'm gonna be pretty accepting either way and um yeah yeah it's more of a philo- philosophy that I kind of have so yeah me too um I thought I was having a girl um so once we found out that Ellis was a boy I was so excited to be a mama to a boy um so yeah it's hard to say what I would choose but um because in a way like part of me would want to choose a boy but I also wouldn't want it to feel like oh we're trying to replace Ellis but I was so excited about the idea of having a boy and I think we've done enough work together like emotional work to know that we're not having another baby to replace Ellis like that's impossible and having another baby is not gonna take away our grief or our pain um so I think we're that was Zelda shaking Zelda go get in your bed get in your bed um so yeah anyways I guess that was kind of a long tangent but um so once once we decide or someone else decides for us what embryo we're going to use, um, they'll freeze all of our embryos. And then they want us to do a mock cycle. So they'll do the egg retrieval probably like um, mid-October. And then we'll take, take another month to do a mock IVF cycle. So during that month, when it gets close to the time that they would implant one of those embryos, they're going to do a biopsy of my uterus. So um, they'll just take a small sample of the tissue and that'll tell them like the receptivity of my endometrial lining and they'll be able to determine what the best day is for my body for implantation. And then the next month, so probably early December is when they'll actually do the real implantation. So I think during that month, we'll have to do some progesterone injections and that helps to build up my uterine lining to make it really cozy for that little embryo, hopefully to attach. Um, And then if all goes well, hopefully we'll be pregnant before Christmas. Um, so the doctor did say that our chances of success, um, if, if we were just to try naturally on our own, our chances of caring to term are 4%, but with in vitro fertilization, with this whole process, it takes our odds up to 70% per cycle. Um, so I know this is not, by any means, it's not guaranteed, but I'm feeling really hopeful just because all of our testing was normal. Um, so how are you feeling? Um, nervous, nervously excited. Um, it's, uh, it's an, it's an exciting new step. Um, not looking forward to giving you shots, but, (laughs) you know, whatever you got to do. So, yeah. I heard another couple describe it as, and they went through their first cycle of IVF, and they described it as a sacred experience. 
And I really loved that. And I thought, you know, that maybe we can kind of embrace that idea too, that this is a sacred experience. It's, we're creating a baby and there is science involved. Um, but that doesn't mean that it still can't be sacred. And I would like to imagine that the experience of you taking care of me in that way and giving me injections and, um, going to appointments with me will bring us closer together and kind of a new level of intimacy. Um, so yeah, maybe just kind of approaching it as a sacred experience together that we're embarking on. Um, that's what I would like to try to do, but I, I feel you on the nervous excitement because, um, part of me thinks, am I just being naive? Like, oh, that this is going to be so no big deal. Um, but I really, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, compared to what we've been through, it's not, um, I don't think it'll be any, you know, harder. So, yeah, I think for me, one very appealing aspect of all of this is that over the last year of trying to conceive on our own, I feel like I took on so much of trying to control that process and tracking my cycle and ovulation and then timing sex according to ovulation. You know, it's not the most fun thing ever to be like, oh, I'm ovulating. Let's have sex right now. Um, And thankfully, you know, that didn't cause us any issues. And we were able to do that and we were able to get pregnant more often than not. Um, so we were tracking everything well and timing everything well. Um, but it still was a very, it got to be really stressful at times for me, um, just to feel like I had to do all these things to optimize my fertility and track everything. So it's appealing to think about handing all of that over to someone else, like these nurses and the doctor who's, yeah, the experts and, and like they're making a calendar for me and they're going to tell us, you know, when every, when to do everything. And we don't have to figure all that out on our own. Mm -hmm. Um, so that seems like it'll take away at least that element of stress. Um, but one thing I'm anticipating is that, um, there's going to be a lot of waiting involved with this process because like once they take my eggs, we have to wait and see how many are healthy. And then we'll have to wait another month to see when the best day is for implantation. And then once they implant the egg, we'll have to wait to see if it worked. So, um, I think the big, big thing that people always kind of complain about or dread about trying to conceive is the two week wait between ovulation and your period or hopefully a positive pregnancy test. And so this is like the two week wait on steroids. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think for both of us, we have a pretty strong, um, you know, meditation, spiritual practice. So I think that's going to be really important during this time is, um, just making sure we're spiritually grounded and, keep up our centering prayer practice um, because it is going to be a lot of waiting and kind of anticipation and um, but that's also exciting so Mm -hmm. yeah 
Um, oh, so one thing I've been thinking about is how um, it's also, it's satisfying to me to have a really clear plan, like potentially, you know, we can do all these steps and by December we could be pregnant. Um, and then by this time next year, we could have a baby if, again, if everything goes well. Um, and so that's exciting because up until this point, it's all been such a mystery and, you know, part of me loves mystery, but then it's frustrating when you keep experiencing pregnancy loss. It just is compounded. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but that reality of like, we really could have a baby a year from now. Um, is exciting, but it's also making me think like, and also, I mean, it's like not just we could, but it's likely that we yeah. will. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you never want to get too much into counting your eggs before they hatch, but, um, but you know, statistically speaking, it is likely. So yeah, that's, yeah. And I think, there's something to be said for uh, the the time that everything takes. The waiting right. is it, you know that it's all because they're so careful about everything. So um, every step is being you know is is important for the viability of your pregnancy, and um, so that makes it easier. I think the wait. Yeah. Hopefully. And I think that's also, there's been a lot of lessons for me just in waiting and the unknown of this last year and this whole process of trying to have a baby for us because, I mean, to be honest, up until this point, up until losing Ellis, up until he died, um, my life was relatively easy and smooth and, you know... I'm very privileged in that sense. Like I went to college and then went to grad school and got a great job um, and haven't had any major tragedies. Um, We have great families. Hunter and I are high school sweethearts. So we actually met in eighth grade on the tennis team and we were friends and um, dated in high school, we were each other's first true love. And then we broke up and went separate ways for college and then came back together our senior year of college. Um, and so, yeah, we just have, we've had a really special, sweet, um, life together so far. Um, so in a way, your point is like that you're, we've had kind of, I guess you, you hadn't had any tragedy or anything like this before Ellis, right? Yeah. So yeah, this just having to wait and not, you know, get everything according to my timeline or feel like, oh, I've got this under control. That was a huge lesson for me of, you know, no matter how much control I think I have in a certain situation, ultimately everything is out of our control and we can do our best. And, um, but yeah, I, I feel like I've just, I'm a type A personality, Enneagram three achiever. So I'm used to making things happen. Um, So anyways, I've learned a lot through this process and I'm much more comfortable with waiting. um, I would like to think. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I also wanted to know like your thoughts on what should we do in this potentially this last year of, of being a couple without children. Hmm. I think, I mean, the easy answer is just do all of the things that you can't or that are harder to do, you know, travel. Um, I mean, and obviously we have, we we have friends and great examples of parents that, um, you know, that don't, uh, that continue to live their lives fully, um, with kids, you know, but reality is that sometimes they, you know, depending on the temperament of the child, it can be difficult and you just have to kind of, um, accept that and, you know, change your lifestyle accordingly. So, um, but yeah, I would like to, um, do a little more travel. I know you still haven't been to Big Bend National Park. Mm. That'd be good yeah. to go there. Um, So I don't know if you shared this on your podcast. I don't think so, but um, but we recently went to a uh, a um, gala or a fundraiser for um, what what's the name of the organization? It's the Star Foundation, which is a national organization for stillbirth research and advocacy. Um, and there was a couple who lost. Whose baby was stillborn um, about a month before Ellis in in April 2018, and they started a chapter of the Star Foundation in San Antonio, and so they hosted this fundraiser, their first fundraiser in San Antonio about a month ago, and Hunter and I went, and we had a great time, um, and it was for a great cause, um, but we put down a twenty five dollar. Uh, <laughs> ticket into a lottery for a um most expenses paid trip to um antigua antigua in in the oh antigua in the caribbean mm -hmm. and so uh there were like five different trips to antigua that they were um they were kind of in the offing and so every time one of them uh, was up I thought oh this is the one we're in and then <laughs> that we didn't win that and then oh there's another trip to Antigua and finally on the last one uh, we ended up winning and it was like the uh, environmentally sustainable <laughs> resort in Antigua and I thought oh that's definitely the one Taylor <laughs> uh, put her ticket in so we ended up winning uh, you seven know, just, nights in Antigua yeah we got to use um, that. So I would like to do that in December. Yeah. Maybe that would be nice. I've never gone on vacation somewhere in the winter, um, somewhere warm. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. It's all exciting. Mm-hmm. So um, this was the first time that Hunter's been on the podcast, and it's been really fun. It has been fun. So um, hopefully... We'll do more of these. And Hunter has... Well, I'd like to um, experiment here. <laughs> and uh, 
Taylor knows I'm a big um, fan of Brian Eno and his some of his uh, oblique strategies that he brings into the the pr production room. Which, by the way, I'm kind of Taylor's producer, kind of, <laughs> kind of the the man behind the the uh, the veil. Kind it's of. true. I haven't given him official credit yet, but I should now. He's helped me produce and edit every one of my episodes. So thanks, babe. You're welcome, babe. <laughs> so I'm pulling one of these oblique strategies cards, which uh, Brian Eno um, and uh, his collaborator, um, Peter something or other, uh, developed. And uh, it's a random card that kind of gives you a direction it says, is there something missing? So what have we left out of this conversation? Hmm. I think we've talked about how um, kind of, you know, miraculous and really kind of eerie the, the whole IVF process is, but really the, the scientific kind of wonder of it all is really pretty fascinating we're gonna have a science baby hopefully yeah <laughs> um one yeah. thing that's neat too is that our doctor recommends that we try for a vaginal birth so um i think i said earlier we had a c-section with ellis because he was transverse so i couldn't deliver him vaginally um which i had my birth plan up until then, we had a doula and we were going to try for an unmedicated natural birth in a hospital. Um, I was seeing a group of midwives, so I really had that um, dream of a natural birth and uh, obviously had no, you know, no screaming idea that what was really going to happen This with him being stillborn. And having to have a C-section. Um, but anyways, it's kind of neat that now that it's been a year since the C-section, we've been cleared to try for a vaginal birth. Because um, I think you have to wait, like, is it 18 months? I don't know. Um, in between a C-section before you can have a vaginal birth because they're worried that the the uterus might rupture during labor at the, the scar site. Um, mm -hmm. So even though we're having a science baby, we might be able to have a natural birth, which would be cool. Yeah. But I'm also open to whatever they need to do. Mm -hmm. Just get it done. You just get it done. <laughs> just give us a healthy baby. Yeah. I think another thing that might be missing, and you were kind of touching on it, but... Um, is just, I guess, my perspective on how this experience or the experience of Ellis um, has changed us and, and our relationship. And um, I would say uh, maybe more aptly, uh, it, it's really deepened our relationship and connection. You might have shared this before, but we, after losing Ellis, um, in the, in the days following, uh, that experience, 
you know, we had some family members who um, were concerned that maybe we should go to have counseling and that, and, and uh, pointing to the fact that a lot of marriages break up after, uh, you know, infant loss. And to hear that at that time was almost, it just didn't make sense to me. It was, it was, uh, it was not sensible because, um, I just, I felt like I was so connected with you. Um, and your, your suffering was my suffering and, um, you know, I can understand in some, I could understand more how in circumstances where there, if there was a more reason to believe that one person, one, uh, in a relationship was responsible for, you know, the loss in some way that that could be, you know, create more tension. But in our case, you know, there was nothing obviously that, that you could have done. And, so I think through throughout that um, the months, you know, days and months following losing Ellis, um, we continued, I, you know, continued to really feel everything you were going through, um, and uh, you know, trying to console you and feeling. Um, kind of uh powerless because sometimes I couldn't you know console you or take away the pain that you were feeling um it's it brought us closer together and I think it, I've been so grateful uh to see that you are have opened up more to understanding the power of darkness and um, pain and suffering in your own spiritual development and journey um, because that's something that I have experienced in my own life. Um, uh, I had some substance abuse issues um, in uh, kind of my late teens, early 20s, and uh my recovery, um, from, from, uh, drug addiction really profoundly shaped the person I am today. And, and so I'm, I'm, I was so grateful that at a point in my life where I felt like I was the lowest, I found, um, kind of the, uh, a gateway to a new type of life and, um, and so, you know, every day I'm grateful for that. Um, and so, but it, but it's uh, something that you can't really share with others unless they've had an experience like that. Um, and I know that you could understand what I've been through and, and, um, but it's a different thing to, to go through it yourself. Um, and so that's been great to, uh, to witness in you. And, uh, you inspire me and you've inspired me to continue to grow spiritually, um, through this. So 
that's been great. And even little things like all of a sudden you would read some Dostoevsky quote <laughs> from Brothers Karamazov, my favorite book. And it like makes sense to you now or clicks, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just like, yes, because, you know, I feel like people can see Dostoevsky as dark or depressing, but really there's the most beauty yeah. in in that kind of work. But you, I think, have to have an appreciation for um for suffering and and the value of it and the freedom that um can come from going through it so yeah yeah and it's hard to explain because we're not saying that we wish suffering on anyone or that it's tricky because i wish ellis was here I would rather have him here than have, you know, the transformation I've gained, but that's not possible. So course, my yeah. only option is to accept what happened and to try to find the good in it. Mm -hmm. And through that experience of intense grief and darkness, miraculously, I also came closer to God than I've ever been before and experienced more light than I ever have before through the people that surrounded us, including strangers. Um, and it's kind of inexplicable. Um, I don't know how it works, but that was my experience. And I think it's for the most part, pretty universal because a lot of people I've talked to who've gone through similar losses or like you going through drug addiction and recovery, that darkness, um, has the potential for great transformation and spiritual growth. Um, so that has been an unexpected gift that Ellis has brought both of us. And I'm so grateful that he brought us closer together and really strengthened our already strong bond. Um, and I am excited for this next step in our journey and hopefully another baby to grow our family um, cause I think you're going to be a great dad. Thank you, baby. Yeah. All right. I'm going to pull another card. Okay. Discover the recipes you are using and abandon them. <laughs> Some of these are a little more abstract. Interesting. Well, you know, immediately what comes to mind is the recipes we've been using for trying to have a baby mm -hmm. haven't been working. And so I'm ready to abandon those. Kind of like we talked about earlier, like we don't have to try on our own anymore, or I don't have to try to control my fertility or, or our outcomes with trying to conceive. Um, we can turn that over to the doctors and the professionals and try something totally new. Mm-hmm. That's good. Good answer, babe. Yeah. Um, look closely at the most embarrassing details and amplify them. Ooh. Hmm. What is most embarrassing about our story? Hmm. Well, I think um, for me, what's most embarrassing are the moments where I have 
felt like I've lost control of myself. Like when we were trying to conceive and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but last Christmas, I really wanted to be pregnant. And that cycle when we were trying, I feel like I got totally crazy and just obsessive and was really um, controlling of you and took out a lot of my frustrations and and grief. It was our first Christmas without Ellis. Um, and that I felt a lot of shame about and just like embarrassed about how I treated you and how I lost control of myself. Um, and I think once the new year came, it really did feel like, oh, a new year. And I kind of had a fresh start with all of it. Um, but then there's been some situations or some experiences I've had recently with um, now being so open about our journey and, and announcing that we're going to do IVF. And I've had comments from people, um, like one person asked me why I want to have a baby so badly and mm -hmm. why I'm so obsessed with having a baby. Um, and then said, you know, are you really going to let them pump you up with all those hormones? And those were all very kind of shame inducing comments because they poked at my pain spots, you know, like those things that I have been embarrassed about of times when I've, when I have felt like, you know, obsessive about trying to have a baby. And, um, I would like to think that for the most part, I'm a very well-balanced person. I have a lot of other interests outside of this. It might not seem like it because I'm doing a podcast and writing a book, um, and doing IVF. So I'm definitely focusing a lot of my energy on this, but I feel like I shouldn't have to explain why I want to have a baby. Um, you know, after holding your baby in your arms and not being able to take them home, um, it kind of, it turned, turned on that mother instinct inside of me. And I just knew, okay, I'm meant to be a mother. And, um, so that's something that we've both said we want to have a family. So that's, you know, we're prioritizing that, but, um, yeah, I'm definitely like embarrassed when people highlight those things of like, are you really going to let them pump you up with all those hormones? It's like, well, yeah, I'd rather not do that. But, you know, we've tried all, we've tried everything else and it hasn't been working. And this is what the multiple professionals have recommended for us. So again, we just kind of have to trust that, trust the process. Well, that leads me nicely into the next card that I've drawn, which is what wouldn't you do? Hmm. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about, let's see, where, where I drew a line. Um, <laughs> this might be a little bit too much information, but um, I figure people are listening to this to, to hear about details, right? But um, I remember... Uh, when you've mentioned, you know, during the period where you were really pushing for pregnancy and um, during when you were ovulating, I was uh, physically sick, <laughs> yeah, ill. And he had a really bad cold. 
I was like, no, I need, I want to go to bed. I'm not, <laughs> this is not good. This is not healthy. Um, and, uh, so I think that was an issue where I just really felt like, um, like if you don't respect me enough to, to give me that space, like it felt like you almost wanted the, the baby more than our relationship or mm. that you were putting that before. Yeah. And so I just felt really strongly on principle that that was something I wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, so that's my, that would be one way I've drawn a line in the sand. Yeah. And we've learned a lot since then, I think about, um, those priorities and just setting our priorities, right. It's like, yes, it's important to both of us to try to have another baby. Um, but ultimately our relationship is the number one priority. So really putting each other first because you have to have a healthy relationship before you bring another human into it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a friend, actually a really close friend who I've interviewed for this podcast and she'll be on the next episode. Um, and she talked about that, how, um, she and her husband had years of infertility and loss and just really, um, was struggling because she felt like Nathan didn't want to have a baby as much as she did. And he told her at one point, Jess, all I've ever wanted is you. And so that was really a turning point for her recognizing it's not that Nathan didn't care. It's just that ultimately he was happy either way. If they weren't able to have kids, all he wanted was to be with Jess. Um, and that a, a child is a, a great bonus. Um, and so I think as women, that's maybe a common feeling is like that our, you know, and I'm talking about, um, traditionally gendered relationships here, like a man and a woman, I'm making a lot of stereotypes, but, um, usually I think the, the women struggle with feeling like their husbands don't feel the loss the same way that they do. And I think there's truth in that. They, women and men experience pregnancy loss differently because the woman carries the baby. Yeah, I mean, like, literally, you feel the loss more because, yeah. like, you feel it in your body. And um, so, yeah, I totally relate to that. And I also relate to um, Nathan's sentiment about uh, um just kind of being okay with or without the baby because it's really, um, because the, because my marriage to you is, you know, so important. And, um, I felt like, you know, I'm not going to be, uh, miserable if we are unable to conceive. I'm going to still live a happy and full life, uh, you know, with you, I, or at least that's what I imagined for us, um, with or without. So, uh, you know, but having said that, I, we do, it, it is like you said, a, a bonus, but, um, but that's kind of when I, when I want, 
drew the line, you know, it's like, I'm not willing to sacrifice our relationship and well-being for, you know, the hopes of trying to conceive. Yeah. I think, should we, we're probably pretty close to wrapping it up. Do you want to do one more? One more. Okay. Voice nagging suspicions. Hmm. <laughs> well, I voiced a nagging suspicion earlier about are these people trying at the at the clinic trying to get one over on us or um but uh we both feel have have faith in the process now, but are there any other suspicions or nagging like what about maybe suspicions about your body or about um about the process or anything yeah um well I guess I have a nagging suspicion that I might be one of the few women who responds too well to the follicle stimulating hormone injections I have a friend who I think it's called like hyperstimulation syndrome or something like that and she had like 32 follicles with, you know, 32 eggs, which I guess is a good thing because you want as many eggs as you can get, um, you know, like more bang for your buck. What's like the average? I, I don't know. I think the average is maybe like between 15 and 20, but I don't know if that's actually true. I feel like that's anecdotal what I've heard from people. Um, but I feel like because I'm healthy and I ovulate regularly, that I might respond like really well or maybe too well to the, the hormones that cause the follicles to grow. Um, and I, I don't think that it's necessarily like dangerous or a bad thing, except I just remember my friend who had it. She said she got super bloated. Like she almost felt like six months pregnant or something because each follicle is the size of a walnut and she had like 32 of them in her belly. So um, but then when they do the egg retrieval, they, um, extract the eggs and all of the fluid from each cyst or follicle. So within that same day, you go back to normal size, I guess. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how I do respond. Maybe to close the episode, you can, uh, this last card that I drew, uh, says retrace your steps. Mm -hmm. So I guess like retracing kind of what we've gone over that um, we're doing IVF, obviously. Um, I just took my first pill last night to start the process. Um, and in a few weeks, we're going to move into the injections and the hormone, the kind of follicle stimulating hormones, and we'll see how many eggies I grow. Um, and then... Yeah, it'll be a couple more months until implantation, and hopefully we'll have a pregnancy. Um, and we'll definitely be updating you guys along the way. Hopefully Hunter will come back on the podcast with me, um, and we can have more of these conversations about how we're doing through the process and um, if everything is going according to plan or not and how things evolve, because I'm sure there will be unexpected curveballs along the way. Um, but thank you for listening and, um, 
we hope that our story helps those of you out there who are um, frustrated or feeling alone or isolated in your journey of trying to have your rainbow baby. Um, I hope that our story can just um, make you feel less alone and um, know that there's other people out there who are struggling too and um, we're all just doing our best. So um, next next episode will feature our friends Jess and Nathan. Nathan won't be on the podcast, but he's definitely um, talked about and one of our beloved friends. Um, so Jess will talk about her amazing story of going through 10 miscarriages, a stillbirth, two full-term pregnancies um, that resulted in her healthy boys and um, and then finally the adoption of their daughter Shiloh. Um, so they have a really powerful story um, that includes a lot of struggle and darkness and also a lot of light. Um, and their baby girl Ava who was their first um, baby who was stillborn, really solidified their relationship. They were on the brink of divorce. Um, so kind of relating to what Hunter and I were talking about of how those experiences kind of can make or break a marriage. Um, so anyways, I hope you'll tune in to the next episode and um, please review this podcast. It really helps to get um, new listeners and um, share it with anyone who you think it's relevant for um, and subscribe on Apple Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>